This episode is part one of a two-part series finale for this season of Dead and Buried. It contains coarse language and references to sex. We've also bleeped out the names of some living individuals to help protect their privacy. I'd like to say, uh, I said I get no special here. I call the guys in the White Horse. Yeah, no sharpies from the area were missing those gigs. Like it was just stacked to the back. In, in some ways, you have the urge to celebrate the idea of brazen femininity, but I think you have to be careful about doing that as well because this was not something you would be suggesting a good friend of yours would, you know, just be part of this scene. I think it was more like I'd die before I'd be like you. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I'd do anything not to be like you. So you would have been just sitting around there by lamplight staring at each other. So the obvious thing is to, to go out and hang out in the streets. And, um, and that's, I, I think that was a big driving force behind why larrikin culture began to start with. Every generation has a rebellious group. You'd walk in the city, nearly everybody was wearing a hat. Everybody was in grey or blue or brown, you know. And we stood out in colour. Welcome to Dead and Buried, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne and beyond. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. This episode, we take a deep dive into some of the most striking and rebellious subcultures to flare up and burn out amongst Melbourne's teens and young adults. But we're starting off in perhaps one of the most unlikely of places. Yeah, I was... uh... 10 in 62 and 16 in 68. You're hearing from Jen Jewell Brown. Jen grew up in the Melbourne eastern suburb of North Baldwin in the late 1950s and 60s. During this time, North Baldwin was Melbourne's archetypical up-and-coming middle-class suburb with tended gardens and picture box windows. So the 50s was a very strictured and boring sort of Everyone peeping through the curtains in North Bourne. Of course, behind the scenes, you know, domestic abuse, alcoholism, all that kind of stuff that nobody talked about. Mm. Music became a really big thing. So when I was um, a younger teenager, I wasn't allowed out, so I used to sneak out the window and go to Q Club, which is a Q Civic Centre, and that was a really great venue but sleepy North Ballham was to experience at least one pretty lively evening. When I was about 20, 21, I finally moved out of home, although I had a, um, a very famous 21st birthday party uh, at my house, at the parents' house in North Ballham. Um, and that was particularly famous because three of the then Rolling Stones came, um, which was Keefe and um, Bobby Keys, the saxophone player, and Mick Taylor, the then guitar player, uh, rocked up. I'd um, given out some invites at Monsalvat at the press conference, Rolling Stones press conference, just beforehand, the day before, I think it was. So they rocked up at four in the morning. Journos got thrown into the pool, um, particularly Dave Dawson from Truth who then went on to write, uh, of course, a huge reveal, Stones at Nude Pool Party. Now that I think about it, my 21st birthday party in North Bourne in Woodville Street actually did feature Sharpies because the door was manned by Michael Chug. At this point in the story, our sound engineer Christian started losing it. Today, Michael Chugg is one of the Australian music industry's biggest and well-known promoters. But back to Jen. And a bunch of Sharpies uh, tried to gate crash and they threw a brick through the window and um, Chuggy saw them off. I've forgotten about that. I just also like that your folks are just there, you know. (laughs) Yeah, Dad was hiding somewhere upstairs. He never came down. But uh, Mum was thriving. (laughs) Mum loved it. Yeah. (laughs) Jen, who was an out-of-work poet, 
went on to join the writing staff at counterculture music paper, Planet, at only 19 years old. She went on to become a respected freelance music journalist. But as for the group trying to gatecrash, Sharpies, also known as Sharps, well, that wasn't her first encounter with members of this subculture. She vividly remembers one of her very first infatuations with a 15-year-old she met at the local swimming centre. I was one of those teens that was pretty slow to develop, so very, very gawky, um, flat-chested, then all of a sudden, bang, you know, boobs everywhere, suddenly the centre of attention of the boys. But, yeah, this, this guy was a Sharpie. I would have been about 15, I suppose, and I remember sitting in a sort of circle of people around him at the bull and baths, all the Sharpies sitting around, and they had their nanchuckers and their knuckle dusters. You know, I'm, I'm sure my crush was in, entirely based on his appearance. You know, as often crushes are in your, your you know, naive early teens. Yeah, so... Um, we never really got to know each other. It was just one of those things where I'd sit round, you know, saying nothing with big eyes, sort of looking at this guy, you know, while he was talking crap, really, basically. I'd become a Melbourne sharp when I was 14, so going to the city was my main thing. That's Shane Shane, who, to be clear, isn't that same guy that Jen met at the pool, but is someone who also identifies with the Sharpie subculture, whose trademark is their closely cropped hair. Chain was born a few years later than Jen and grew up in the suburb of Port Melbourne. Either 1957 or 1959, I'm not sure when I was born because I've got two different dates, one of my father and one of my mum. My dad was a wharfie, a bit of a gangster. They had me, uh, mum met his best friend and so I was named after the best friend whose surname was Shane. Uh, my dad was up to no good and all this stuff. Mum set him up with the cops to get him out of the house because he was being violent to her and stuff. Uh, the best friend stood in and uh, Dad was chasing after us for ages. He stabbed my stepfather in the groin outside Mark Killies one time. Um, went to jail and so we were on the run. So we moved every year, basically. When Chain's mother remarried the best friend, Chain took on his stepfather's surname. And uh, so when I left and went off with them, I became Shane Shane. So that was pretty weird. I was never very good at school. I was dyslexic from the beginning, so uh, not much hope there. High school was the only school I went to for two years, so that was pretty good. Bit of an education there. And then I left and um, started working. I started on the wharf first, and then I got an apprenticeship as a painter. So like most of my generation, we gave up schooling and took up trades. A lot of them were, I thought, really good-looking guys and um, but tended to be uh, on the short side and but muscular. You know, a lot of tradies probably, carpenters, plumbers, uh, but I don't want to throw them all in the same basket. Uh, my mum was very nervous about me working on the wharf. I didn't know why, but I found out later. And uh, she was always worried about me getting a uh, criminal no uh, reputation and that. She was always worried about that. Um, I remember just before I left home, I'd been out on a Friday night, Saturday night. We'd done about 20 different things that we could have got arrested for. And the police come round to arrest me and she goes, take him away, he's hiding in there. And, but I'd broken her heart because I'd become like my father. But none of this was known to me, so it was all very strange, you know, why I was being treated so weird. Anyway... All that happened, so uh, from the age of 14 on, I was on my own. But before we go any further, it's probably a good point to introduce someone else we spoke to about Sharpies. Hi, Carly. Hi, how are you going, Naz? I spoke to Naz, who is based at the University of South Australia, over Skype. So you may notice some differences in the sound quality at various points in our conversations. Also, that Northern English twang you might have picked up on, well, it comes from the fact that he's originally from Manchester. But anyway, back to Naz. My name's um, Dr Paul Oldham, but my nickname is Naz and everybody calls me Naz. I, like, I, before I got into all of this stuff, I was a musician for 20-plus years in a band called King Daddy and various other bands, um, and I was a music journalist... Um, so I did street press and I did um, other press as well, mainstream press, over 20 years. But 
that's kind of where I got my nickname. And so now when people call me Paul, it kind of, like, I, I wonder who they're talking about. My, I did my PhD on Sharpies, um, particularly Melbourne Sharpies, which are a distinct strain. Uh, I just, from the second I saw my first picture of a Sharpie, I was fascinated. Like, that fascination just grew and grew. And so I went looking for information about them, couldn't find that much. So after a while it became, oh, so I've got to go and find out myself, do I? Sharpies were largely working class, fashion oriented uh, Australian youth culture, which spanned four distinct generations and lasted from the mid 60s to the 1980s and reached its peak from about 1973 to 1974 in Melbourne. They were the most popular and long-lived in Melbourne, but they were also very strong in Sydney, um, particularly in the 60s, but into the 70s as well, and they cropped up all over Australia, mostly around the East Coast, but down to Adelaide in the country regions as well. Although, if you talk to anybody from Melbourne, they'll deny that anybody else was ever a real Sharpie. I think it's a Melbourne thing. <laughs> and it was primarily bored suburban teens from about 14 to 18 years old. They would often hang around in groups. I'm loath to ever call Sharpies um, groups gangs because that, you know, there's this connotation that goes with gangs. There were, there were generally groups of friends, but those groups of friends could be very highly territorial. They could be quite intimidating and bullying to those who weren't Sharpies. Chain again. I don't know. We kind of recognised each other. There's like a bunch of kids who weren't happy with how things were. And we kind of just recognised each other, usually by the look. You know, you'd become sharp and then, bang, doors would open. People would talk to you. People would notice you. Things like that. So it was a step up to uh, becoming a teenager, really. It was your adolescence. And that's the thing everybody forgets, too. We were all just kids. You know, most of us were under 18. You know, it's between 18 and 14 you were sharp. You know, and these were the big gangs that everybody was scared of, you know. They were just kids, you know. But we were angry little kids, though. <laughs> Where do you think that anger had come from? That anger come from our parents, I think. I mean, they were all rebels, too, and they did their own thing. Before Sharpies came along, Australia had seen the rise of the bodgies and the widgies. Bodgies for the guys and widgies for the women and girls. These so-called loudish young people modelled themselves on the American soldiers who had been here during World War II, whom, if you want to know more about, by the way, you can listen to on our Season 1 episode, The Singing Strangler. The word bodgie is thought to have meant fake or bogus and was applied to anyone talking with a fake American accent. Bodgies originally wore jeans and American Air Force jackets and zoot suits. This was superseded by moccasins, drape suits and peg trousers. Widgies had short hair and sometimes wore jeans. Shane's mum had been a widgie. But our parents used to mess up because they were pre-war kids or, you know, born during the war. They had all their problems and all their anger and all of a sudden when they had kids, they turned around and said, right, we've done nothing, we've been little angels and we've got to raise these children not to be like us. And so we were basically the generation who was seen but not heard, you know. You sit there and just shut up. We've got nothing to say, we've got nothing to listen to from you. And that's the way you were treated. And all of a sudden, we had a voice, we had a style, we had a look. People were scared of us and we just went, let's go with this, you know. It was a huge generational difference between my generation, um, you know, exemplified by the Who's song, I guess, with all its stuttering and kind of um, anger and repression, wanting to burst out, you know, anti-war sentiments and just not, not wanting to, you know, get old like their parents and the idea of not, you know, I'll die before I get old. I think it was more like I'd die before I'd be like you. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I'd do anything not to be like you, which is very insulting. And, of course, as you grow older, you get more of a perspective on the good stuff that your parents had. But um, the barbecues and the sort of phone calls and the fakery and the, you know, going to the, 
you know, meeting with the husband when they were estranged, you know, and entertaining people at home when they really didn't get on and all that sort of thing. You just, you didn't want to know about that. So around this period of the late 60s and going into the 70s, there were quite a few subcultures in uh, the youth group. Of course, there were surfies. Uh, they weren't so much in my clique, but we knew some surfies and some of them were into, uh, you know, meditation and uh, Maya Baba and things like that. Very interesting. Uh, then there were still rockers. Rockers were around and they had uh, quiffs and they were into Bob, um, uh, Bill Haley and the Comets and so on. And I loved that record too. That was an amazing record, um, Rock Around the Clock. Rockers had emerged out of the bodges and widgies and took on a James Dean kind of look, wearing black or white T-shirts or button-ups, singlets or flannelettes, suit, denim, leather or herringbone jackets and tight jeans. Also present was a stronghold of Australian mods, some of whom flocked to Bertie's in Melbourne, an opulent three-level unlicensed discotheque which enforced a strict dress code. There were the mods who came really heavily um, on the heels of The Who and um, to some degree The Beatles and The Rolling Stones. Uh, the, the Regency style Victoria and Albert Club Berties at number one Spring Street was sartorial, absolutely sartorial. People were so beautifully dressed there. So some of the mods were, were very influenced by the English style of dandyism, I guess, you know, velvet, lace um, and layering and some beautiful colour work and things like that, which worked quite well in the cold Melbourne weather. As for the Sharpies, their distinctive look was at the heart of their emergence and identity. Like They were called Sharpies because they liked to look sharp. First-generation sharps of the mid-1960s wore flags, 22-inch wide bottoms, usually pinstripe, Prince of Wales or herringbone check, in various hues of grey or brown. Shirts were tennis, polo style, in three or four button, often with stripes and piping. But if you were heading out to a dance on a weekend, that meant putting on your best threads, which was a suit, Italian three-breasted or double-breasted, Cuban heels and even a pork pie hat. Sharpie girls of the 60s, known as Sharpie Brush, opted for crisp, classic simplicity, favouring twin sets, knee-length pleated skirts, pearls and a hairstyle that, of course, was usually chin-length or shorter. The 60s Sharpie style had a kind of tough guy mobster flavour to it, but the Sharpies, or even delinquent rockers and bodgies and widgies before them, were hardly the first group of street territorial teens in Melbourne. There were others who had come a fair few years before. Well, it's interesting. I mean, when Australians use the term today, when we use it, I guess we're talking about a character that's really bound up with myths of national identity. So, you know, a larrikin is some kind of rough and ready, rascally, mischievously blokey folk character, you know, the sort of a mythic, typical Australian bloke that beer and rum companies are trying to target in football ads. That's Dr Melissa Belanta, a historian who teaches at the Australian Catholic University in Sydney. But back in this period, the late 1860s really, or early 1870s onwards, when the term first starts being used in Melbourne, it didn't have that kind of affectionately feel-good um, factor or obviously national implications. So it sort of meant young, cocky, streetwise, uh, a bit like hoodlum or hooligan, I guess, at the time. So the people who used it um, to describe themselves were typically aged from their kind of mid-teens to their early 20s and they were living in, in industrial districts like uh, Carlton and Collingwood and usually without steady jobs and they spent most of their time socialising the streets and running about late at night. Well, really the image that larrikins tried to project to the world in the late 19th century and then into the early 20th century is probably best described through terms like edgy, streetwise, flash, flashy. So what did they look like, these groups of larrikins, otherwise known as pushers? Well, aside from mugshots, there's few actual photos of larrikins. Mostly what we have are sketches, descriptions and cartoons and sartorial papers like The Punch. 
most emulated style is that of the 1880s male larrikin being kind of like, like a, a Spanish, Spanish cowboy, cowboy look. look. Uh. Writer and historian Michael Shelford. So we're talking like a, a large black broad-rimmed hat. Uh, they had a, a short black jacket which was called a Tommy Dodd jacket, um, tight fitting. Um, mostly wearing black, but they used to have a, a very brightly coloured scarf around the neck. Uh, red, uh, yellow, orange, that sort of thing. Their trousers were very tight-fitting at the top and flared at the bottom. As for the girls, who were sometimes dubbed larrikinesses, they were portrayed as wearing bright colours and, and ones, ones that clashed as much as possible. So something that was really violent on the eye, a straw hat with large plumes of feathers coming down off them. And uh, they used to carry a short parasol which could double as a club if they got into a melee. And um, I also saw reference to them wearing uh, short skirts, which in those days a short skirt, I suppose, may have been one that came to the knee or something like that, uh, and long boots to accentuate how short the skirts were. However... The question of dress actually is vexed because there were plenty of people later who spoke about larrikin style from the late colonial period in particular as if it was really distinct, um, you know, in the way that we would now think of... of you know, a really uh, sartorially conscious subculture. But we have to remember that we're talking about young people with hardly any disposable income and so the whole notion of this kind of finely elaborated subcultural style really belongs to a much later, more consumerist age. But having said that, there was a sense of, you know, a striving to look flamboyant, um, to sort of to be eye-catching in a streetwise way for youth that took part in this scene, particularly for special occasions like a dance on a Saturday night. So Melissa believes that, yes, the exaggerated caricatures of Saturday night larrikin style couldn't have been entirely off the mark. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been funny if they bore no relation to actual larrikin dress. But rather than treating these images as representative of what all larrikins actually wore, they are suggestive of the most overt larrikin street look a style adopted by the most full-blown or resourceful larrikins, not what all young people who moved in larrikin circles wore. Um, but, you know, I guess the most important thing to remember is that the flash larrikin style had to be achieved in cheap, improvised ways rather than cut from whole cloth, as it were. So, you know, that meant neck, neck sheaves and pins that fastened them are really important. Hats are important, if only if you wear them at a particular rakish angle. Um, hair could be important, so it could be shaved off at the sides or sort of tousled up at the fringe. Um, and, you know, if not, also belts and boots and other forms of clothes. A lot of, a lot of the larrikins worked in the local factories and the big factory um, industry around Fitzroy and around Collingwood was boot manufacturing. So they used to be able to make their own boots, pimp their own boots, you know, put their own sort of um, leather engravings and stamps and, um, you know... You know what kids are like trying to outdo each other. It's like sweeping up your car. <laughs> and the girls? They were even less likely to have disposable income. But they would made do if they were looking for a kind of streetwise flamboyant look by, like, say, cutting off skirts or hiking them up to about knee length or maybe uh, upscaling an old skirt, you know, sewing it on a piece of second-hand plush on a rough as a ruffle on an old skirt, for example, or teaming a feather boa with a shabby blue short dress, you know, trying to jazz up what you could do in the most improvised way possible. Shortly after Jen had her famous 21st birthday party in North Baldwin, she moved out of home into her first share house in the artist community yeah. of Elwood. Yeah, we had a lot, of, a lot of fun. It was a really creative household. So I was this, you know, scraping it together journo. I think my dad gave me $20 a week to help me and then I was off on my own shortly after that. Um, there was Ross Wilson, uh, who was in Daddy Cool and... More on Daddy Cool later. Also Carol Jerems, the photographer. She was a, a fascinating character and a transgressive kind of woman. Um, didn't wear makeup. Uh, she, I remember when I first arrived there opening the fridge and it was just full of, full of film stock. She had a, she had a great uh, little dark room there that I used to, to watch her work in. 
Carol Jerrams was teaching at Heidelberg Technical School when she befriended its disadvantaged students, some of whom were members of Sharpie gangs. She photographed and filmed them in nearby Banyul Reserve on the Yarra River. She was teaching photography and some of her students were Sharpies and she, Carol had her own strange relationship with them. Um, uh, very famously photographed some of them in the photograph that became known as Vale Street. Um, that photo shoot actually started at our house in the backyard at Mozart Street and then um, she asked the boys, I think, to take your top off and then um, Katrina, she asked her, you know, oh, how about you take your top off? So she took her top off too and they were all sort of, you know, it was a summer leafy sort of setting and I think she took some shots there and then they decided to go round to Vale Street for whatever reason. Vale Street remains one of the most iconic photographic images of 1970s Melbourne and you'll find links to her series of work on Sharpies via our website. Vale Street features then-aspiring actress Katrina Brown and in it the tattoos of the two young men are clearly visible. In the photograph Mozart Street they're smoking and wearing striped cardigans. But was this a typical 70s Sharpies look? As you would imagine, over four distinct generations, the look morphs and changes. Every generation has a rebellious group. You'd walk in the city, nearly everybody was wearing a hat. Everybody was in grey or blue or brown, you know. And we stood out in colour. Um, I was a little bit different because as a Sharp, I was a big uh, Bowie fan by about 72. So I had my hair spiky and dyed red. But the Sharps accepted that because it was rebellious as well. So I was in on that way. I mean, I shaved my head a couple of times, but not very often. I usually always had a Bowie cut. But, uh, that was accepted. Also because uh, when Sharp started, Sharp mod kind of thing happened, and then the Sharps kind of died off and became this group called Stylists. Now, the Stylists... Bobby would have fitted in perfect with that. And then stylists become the 70s sharp. Hey, tell me about the stylists. I think that they were particularly influenced by the Who, who had strange haircuts where they had quite a short fringe high on the forehead and then uh, longer hair over the head and, you know, coming down uh, over the shoulders and around behind the ears but not a lot sort of like in front of the ears unless you're sort of growing, um, you know, mutton chops like maybe John Entwistle, their bass player. But they had a thing where they got these um, cheap nylon scarves that must have come out of chemists or supermarkets at that time and um, they were all in, in kind of neon bright colours and they'd, they'd wear one of those around their neck uh, and some beautiful clothes and shoes and things like that. So so they were very dressy style. Of, yeah, subculture. <laughs> but they were a, a small group and they didn't seem to last long. Sharpie girls also had their own distinct style. And what was that fashion that they attended? Can you oh pinafores, um, clog shoes, you know the whole kind of look, really. Mm. Yeah, uh, or usually you know a skirt with a, a mini skirt with a Connie cardigan or you know something like that. Um, there was also Sam's cardigans, which were as good as Connie's. There was a few different styles, but the the look was always the same. One size too small. Bright colour and a loud stripe. You know. it, it does get, start to get quite cartoonish around the fourth generation, but that in itself is contextualised with the 70s and that point in the 70s. Just check out some of the things that people were wearing in glam. All right, so that's when you start getting the, the platform heels and the, everything's really small and sh too small. And But at that time, that made sense. And then it just kept going. <laughs> they hate that. The earlier, the earlier Sharpies really are very, very unhappy with where that kind of stuff went. But the Sharpies of that time, that's what they needed to do. That's what the things that they were into were doing as well. By the late 70s or, say, 80s, when it all died out, um, you know, everybody was wearing tight jeans and uh, 
designer cardigans and things. So the fashion changed, but you had to change with it. You know, you could be wearing last week's stuff. Oh, you were ratchet. One of the most iconic fashion items people tend to recognise later generation Sharps by is the lettered T-shirts, spelling out the name of their respective Sharpie group. Uh, when I left home, I'd started knocking around with some guys in Ascot Vale. We'd started a gang, and that was my first ever gang. You'd stake your area. Well, West Road was very smart because there was no rest West Road in Ascot Vale. Ascot Vale kind of heads down towards Maribyrnong, and if you went down to Maribyrnong, behind the drive-in theatre, there was this little track that the tram used to go up, and it was an unmade road. It was all blue stones, and it was just for tram tracks. Well, that was called West Road. So anybody come looking for us, we'd drive up that road, and their car would be wrecked immediately. And there are a few uh, larrikin pushes that were named after pubs, so suggesting that they spent a lot of time there. So the Rising Suns in Richmond, the Emu Push in, um, named after Carlton's Emu Hotel, a group fleetingly calling itself the Star Hotel Push in South Melbourne and so forth. But really the most common thing in terms of what they called themselves was just to do with the neighbourhood or street where most people would have come from. So Freeman Street is in Carlton. The Irish Town Push in South Richmond, the Campbells after Campbell Street in Collingwood and so forth. Where did Sharpies like to hang out? So you mentioned kind of train lines, that you'd rather train lines into the city, or like what was the stomping ground? Well, mostly your friends were people from your area, people you knew. So it was usually at the local shops, you know. Um, the Alpha Boys at the shops, that's what it was. Uh, and then, you know, you'd, you'd be hanging, say uh, there was a gang called Anderson Road uh, in Faulkner. So when I joined after Melbourne Sharps, they had a really big reputation as being unbeatable. And uh, I met a couple of them in the city and I went down, had a party at one of their places, went to the shops where they hung around, hung around with them a bit, got the T-shirt, joined the gang. It was an era where it wasn't a very comfortable thing to be inside in a house in the inner, inner suburbs of Melbourne in that era. You know how hot it gets here in summer. The places were really overcrowded. There were sometimes whole families to a room. Families were pretty big in those days, so we're talking, you know, it wasn't unusual to have six, eight, ten kids. Small two, three-bedroom house. You knock off work. There's no TV to watch. Most places wouldn't have had a radio. So you would have been just sitting around there by lamplight staring at each other. So the obvious thing is to, to go out and hang out on the streets. And, um, and that's, I, I think that was a big driving force behind why larrikin culture began to start with. Because, you know, people would, you know, start to hang out with their friends at a particular street corner and the group of another friends that hang out at another street corner might start calling your names and you'd stick up for your street corner. And before you know it, you're a larrikin push. In terms of where they hung out and the sorts of things that they did, I mean, definitely the street, as I've mentioned, and vacant lots are a key site. So there's still so many vacant lots all through in industrial neighbourhoods in Melbourne in this period, you know, right up to the, the First World War, but especially in that late 19th century period. Um, so you could stage bare-knuckled fights in these, you could stage sing-songs, you could drink, you could muck around, you know, much as teenagers do today if they're not on their phones. And there are also just steps of local halls, you know, the corners under street lights, the typical um, larrikin stamping grounds. But entertainment quarters uh, are also significant. I think particularly significant that larrikinism as a kind of scene emerges in and around about the 1870s when Melbourne is urbanising and it's finally getting what I guess you could call an entertainment quarter in and around Eastern Burke Street and especially around the Eastern Market where there was um, side shows and drinking booths and dance halls, boxing show venues, even amusement rides um, by the late 19th century. So that's the same now non-existent Eastern Market which we talk about in our very first episode, Fortune Killer. So there's a group of larrikins that call themselves the Flying Angels at the turn of the century for example and this was the name of an amusement ride, probably what we'd call a Flying Fox now, at the Hippodrome across the road from the Eastern Market gives you a sense of where they spent most of their time, I think. 
I think that the Larrikins really saw the police as sport. And in any sport, you need the opposition. So the police were the opposition. Beat duty was a really um, big part of um, a police officer's day in those days. They used to have to actually work beats at night time around Collingwood, Fitzroy, really dangerous areas, and they were by themselves. It used to be what they used to call in those days point duty, and they, they needed to be at a particular corner at a particular time, and then they needed to be at another corner at a particular time. If they were running early or running late, they'd have to actually give proper reasons by and a report to their senior officers, and they'd often be fined, suspended, if those answers weren't good enough. They had another police officer that used to work the beat in the opposite direction. So they were supposed to meet up at certain corners at certain times and then they'd sign off in their book on whether or not that other police officer was where they were supposed to be. So if they weren't where they were supposed to be, that the other officer had to put in a report about it. But aside from those points where they met up, they were by themselves. The larrikins knew where they were going to be at all of those times. So they knew what time they were going to be going past. They knew what time they were going to be safe to get up to whatever they wanted to do in another part of the suburb. And if they were bored and they just wanted to try and lure the police officer into a fight, they knew where to be as well. And they used to taunt the police quite often um, and, and try and, and get a single police officer to fight maybe 10 or 12 of them. Uh, yeah, you mentioned yeah a little bit about some of the other groups um, that were, yeah, 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 hanging about. What was the... Conflict. Yeah, conflict around that. Well, this is our area. Fuck off. You know, it was that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know? And was that between you and other Sharpie groups or other kind of groups that were hanging about? Oh, any other gang or... coming to your yeah. area, you give them a smack and tell them to fuck off. Um, if they were Sharps, then, yeah, it was on. Yeah, it was just the thing. We were very tribal like that. Um, this is our area. What are you fucking doing here? You know? However, the actual ethnic composition of Sharpies wasn't as whitewashed as you might initially think. Waves of post-war migration had seen the influx of Greeks, Greeks, Italians and kids that were getting called wogs um, from all sorts of cultures, Slavic cultures, um, Spanish-speaking people, all lumped into this wogs kind of basket, very nasty. Um, And they, they... you know, use their fists quite a lot, I think, to defend themselves. And perhaps um, a lot of them were quite strong uh, members of the groups that uh, became Sharpies. Culturally, too, everybody was looking for something. You know, um, Australia was trying to find its identity and not be British. And uh, So what happened is instead of becoming skinheads here, we all became Sharps. So we were skinheads that weren't racist. And that was really the philosophy of the whole thing. You know, we didn't... uh, I mean, you know, we call someone a wog a day, all that kind of stuff. But that was in a friendly kind of way and it wasn't used aggressively or to attack someone. Yeah, the the Sharpies, uh, they they do seem very Australian, don't they? They... There was, of course, the skinheads overseas which were uh, very sort of caught up with the Nazi racism and, and that kind of thing, but our skinheads didn't seem to be like that. Like, they were more inclined to bash somebody from another um, youth sub- subculture, uh, particularly the mods were their favourites, but um, probably they thought the mods wouldn't fight so much because they might mess their clothes up. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We asked Shane to share one of his favourite stories from his time as a sharp. Now, when I was with A&A, we had this big fight with the uh, gang from uh, Bayside. They were the Bayside sharps, obviously Frankston and all those areas around there, Chelsea and all that. Uh, We used to fight against them all the time. And I remember once at Essendon, they used to follow Essendon Football Club. So we went during a football, got about 120 of us. We were all waiting in the subway there in Essendon Station and we, just saw, we heard the crowd coming. So we come out and we attacked the crowd. Right? Stupid us. It was the whole football crowd. Of course, they were at the front, so we ran at them and started fighting them and it broke into the biggest all-in brawl I've ever seen. Filled up the streets and everything. Um, everybody went running in different directions. I remember I smashed a couple of guys and bolted. I jumped onto a bus... And the driver said, I'm not leaving yet. And I said, you're fucking leaving now. Look in the mirror. He looked in the mirror. There's about 50 guys running at him. He took off. 
So that was good. Incidents that suggest that there was this link between larrikin pushes and football teams, particularly in the early years of the 20th century, it seems to me. I mean, this is when the rise of football and of football spectatorship is taking off in Melbourne anyway. Um, but so there's an example of the North Melbourne Crutchy Push, for example, being arrested while they're trying to scale a fence at a local North Melbourne Oval to avoid having to pay for tickets, wearing hats festooned with blue and white streamers. Remember that name, Crutchy Push, because we'll talk about them more further down the track. But there's other examples of, um, say, a White Roses push in South Melbourne, and then there's also references to White, uh, White Roses Football Club and members of the White Roses um, push being arrested for hooliganism after a game. From the viewpoint of the, of the larrikins and the pushers, they would have seen the teams representing their area. The other nights of the week, they would have seen themselves as representing their area. So it was kind of like almost an extension of what they were doing, defending the name of their suburb, the pride of their suburb. And so um, they would turn up to the main battleground, which was the sporting field, um, to see those two suburbs doing battle. They would do their own bit in the crowd. They'd fight the fans of the other team. Uh, the Rovers from Albert Park was an example of, um, a la of a gang, a push, that were also a football team. And they'd talk about how um, the junior football teams would turn up to play and they'd fight on the field throughout the game and then they'd fight off the field after the game as well. <laughs> like, disclaimer on the violence. Violence is what everybody talks about and I kind of think that the, that's just a fairly small proportion of what they did. Highly spectacular, and if you were on the receiving end of it, highly memorable, but that's just a little bit. In terms of the violence, I will get into this because the violence is entrenched in other things, but um, it could be anyone. Um, like, there were like fights between Sharpie gangs. Some of those sh uh, fights were serious. Some of them were fun. Um, anybody who wasn't a Sharpie, if you had long hair or, or you were walking through their neighbourhood, you could get on the wrong side of them as well. So that stuff was definitely there, but it's, like I say, it's just a part of what Sharpies were. Things would escalate and no telling where they went, you know. But we also had our own fun, you know, made our own rules. I mean, if anybody ever went out on a weekend, had a pool, we'd take over their house. We'd just have a pool party, you know. Did lots of stuff like that. Basically went wherever we wanted to do, did whatever we wanted to do, and sometimes it caught up with you. So dances and things like that, was that the kind of more around the Sharpie generation of the oh, yeah, 60s? Yeah, yeah. Or? No, no, in the 70s there was a... Look, there would have been a Saturday night dance in most suburbs. There was always one in Oak Park. We used to always go there and then kick off afterwards. Um, there was a, a dance at a hall in Box Hill and um, members of the Freeman Street push from North Carlton were going and members of the Flying Angels from South Melbourne were going. And uh, that Box Hill was only a little country suburb at that point of time and that place got trashed. And all of the pub, you know, they went out in drays, so big, big drays that you could fit maybe a dozen larrikins on <laughs> to go to the party. And there was girls as well there and a, a big dance and that sort of stuff. But um, on the way back, lots of pubs were trashed. All the pubs in Box Hill just closed for the day. <laughs> there were special dances for Sharpies. Started off in the 60s and made it through to the 70s, a lot of them. Um, I think in the 60s, with the mod thing and the sharp thing, dance has become very important uh, because a lot of bands weren't playing the clubs so much then either. Uh, that came along more in the 70s with Billy Thorpe and Lobby creating the pub scene. We'll talk more about Billy Thorpe, Lobby Lloyd and Oz and Pub Rock later on in part two of this episode. Before that, no, there was only a few hotels where they'd play. It was usually dancers. And uh, that carried on into the 70s a bit. But the dance thing was very big when it started. That's where the mods and sharps started their rivalry. Who could get in? Who could get the girls? That kind of thing. Was, uh, one of the guys in my gang, his mum organised the dancers. So, yeah, it was always a parent or a little group of people that would hire out a local church hall and then put on a dance. 
because they'd written the paper that these sharpy kids are getting in trouble and causing trouble, and they'd try to do that to give us something to do. You know? mm-hmm. So it was good of them. Yeah, that's So we go to their dance and start the fights there. You know? <laughs> Naz explained that during the 60s and 70s, for those inside sharpie circles and others outside of it, violence, while never excusable, could be more normalised as part of everyday environments. Corporal punishment was used in schools and many homes, or violence could be perpetrated by older siblings. I'm not a fighter, I don't. <laughs> like I, I don't, I, like I, I don't do much in terms of violence uh, for fun. <laughs> it doesn't come up very often, but it was an expression of fun for and toughness for some people, um, and that kind of has to be understood in, in as part of the context. He also emphasised that sharpie violence and territorialism ought to be considered as a continuation of rowdy Australian working-class youth culture. Working-class traditions, which include notions of masculinity, codes of toughness, testing of your mettle, uh, you know, protection of territory, property, honour, reputation, and all of that kind of through um, sometimes physical violence or front. OK, so it wasn't all... Violence, a lot of that was front and intimidation, of course. Um, And so there could be clashes over ideological differences, over um, territorial issues, uh, over reputation, over um, opposite sex stuff. So, like, were you looking at my girlfriend? Like, what were you looking at? How I left the Melbourne Sharps was interesting. There's this guy called... He was hanging around Flinders Street steps. I walked past with a couple of friends of mine. I had my kind of bowie cut and I had makeup over one eye, red, white and blue stripe running down my neck. And he called me a poof and I said, go and fuck yourself. And he said, oh, yeah, you want to come to the toilet? We'll have a fight. I said, as long as you don't want to try to fuck me in there. Uh, He chuckled. We chuckled. He goes, oh, you got a bit of balls. He was about 18. I was 14 or something, or 13 at that stage, I think. I stood up to him, he said, oh, you got some balls? I said, yeah, well, you know, I don't like being fucked around. He liked the way I carried myself, asked me to hang around with him and I joined Melbourne Sharps. Um, he had a girlfriend and uh, I used to hang around with him and always, you know, if he got in a fight or something, I'd stand back, take care of shit like that. Um, he went to jail. We go to a party to raise money for him. I scored a party. Everybody thinks I'm chasing her. I get attacked. I got belted pretty bad that night. Next day I rang her up and I said, what the fuck was that about? And she goes, oh, idiots and all this. And I said, well, what do you want to do today? So we hung around the next day and uh, we started uh, having something together. And she said, look, you know, those guys shouldn't have done that. And I said, well, you know, I'm just there to take care of you. Things kicked on. Uh, next thing, he's out of jail and wants to kill me. So I think, well, I think I better step back out of Melbourne Sharps for a little bit. So I went back to West Road. That continued on. That kind of thing happened always to lots of people. Keep in mind that like, there was an awful lot of Sharpies, especially from the first two generations, but into the third and fourth, that talked about things like codes of honour. Okay? And, like, so um, that, uh, like, you were expected to have good form. And that meant, like, you know, it would be one-on-one or a fairly equal number of gang people against another, like, no weapons to a fist fight, things like that. And, of course, this was... I say these things, then that's up to individuals. So some honoured this and, and tried to show good form as often as possible, and some just didn't, didn't care about that at all. So... Again, individual, like, it wasn't a monoculture. There was, there, there was quite a lot of diversity. Shane remembers arriving at an arrangement with the Westside Sharps when he was with the A&A group. They caught me on my own once. I was going to the city, waiting for my girlfriend, sitting on a station. The only time I ever wore platform shoes. And I'm wearing them, the train pulls off and there's a couple of carriages of them. They said, who are you? And I said, I'm gone. <laughs> Jumped the fence, took <laughs> off. They chased me down, kicked me down in the doorway. Uh, they were laying into me in this doorway and all of a sudden I hear ping, ping, ping. The guys come out of the shop and they it was a pizza shop and they had the pizza trays and they were whacking them with that. 
So they got him off me. I got a broken nose and a bit busted up. Um, after that, I got a call from the leader of their game. And he apologised like crazy. And I said, doesn't matter, I'm going to kill you when I see you. Anyway, we, we arranged then, because things were getting really overheated, you know. Because after I got that building, a whole lot of ANAs went down there and started shooting up the place. So they were really worried that it was getting out of control. So what we arranged was two members of my gang would go hang around with them for a weekend and two members of them would hang around with us. So it's like an exchange. Yeah. yeah. I just thought, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd been raised on war stories and that, so I thought, okay, well, there was an exchange, you know. Uh, it worked really good. The gangs actually got close. We gave their guys, I mean, half the gang wanted to kill them and the other half, we ended up giving them a good time. Uh, got them into a fight, got them stoned, got them drunk, got them laid, you know, all that kind of stuff. And after that, there was no more trouble between the two gangs, which was really strange. That's the end of part one of this episode. Check out Those Bloody Kids part two to continue the story. This episode was produced, researched and written by me, Carly Godden, with editing and production support by Lee Hooper. Mixing, audio production and the original score was by Christian O'Brien and our Dead and Buried theme music is by Robin Waters. You can find the full list of music credits on our website. Jen Jewel Brown is the author of Skyhooks, Million Dollar Riff and Michael, my brother, Lost Boy of In Excess, along with Tina Hutchins. Melissa Belanta's book, Larrikin's History, is still available online. I'd also like to especially thank former Sharpie and author Julie Mack for pointing me in the right direction when I first started researching this topic. And finally, if you want to hear more from Michael Shelford, you can experience him in the flesh on his Melbourne historical crime tours. Just look it up. You can explore the original evidence we use to build our stories at deadandburiedpodcast.com. Connect with us on social media and discover more Dead and Buried episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Even better, leave a review to help spread the word. Season 2 of Dead and Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its Arts Funding and Advisory Body and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria.